Hello, and welcome to Learning for Life at Gustavus, the podcast about people teaching and learning at Gustavus Adolphus College. In the myriad ways that Gustavus liberal arts education provides a lasting foundation for lives of fulfillment and purpose. I'm your host, Greg Castor, faculty member in the Department of History. Cheese, I venture to say, is not a word most people immediately associate with church. It is in my case, though, thanks to my colleague and guest today, Professor Brian O'Brien of the Department of Chemistry at Gustavus, a department he's also chaired. Years ago, a church not far from campus was the venue for an event Brian organized, hosted, and billed as Cheeserama. I can still see and smell the tables full of dozens of cheeses that Brian explicated before we attendees sampled them with accompanying wines. More recently, Brian and Smell have been forever and famously linked to Gustavus's blooming malodorous corpse flower, popularly known as Perry, which began from seeds Brian received and planted long before. People have come from near and far to see, smell, and learn about Perry, who of course also has a Facebook page. An expert in fluorine, phosphorus, organic, inorganic, and organophosphorus chemistry, Brian earned his BS and PhD in chemistry from the Georgia Institute of Technology. Following postdoctoral research at Kansas State and Clemson University, he joined the faculty of Gustavus in 1985, uh, the year before uh, my wife Kate Winstein and I joined. In addition to his regular courses in organic and inorganic chemistry, he conducts research with students resulting in presentations and publications. As all this suggests, Brian is one interesting person and professor, and I haven't even mentioned his cultivation of orchids, considerable skill in the kitchen, and wonderfully dry sense of humor. A true learner for life, I'm delighted he could join me today on the podcast. Welcome, Brian. Good to have you here. Oh, thanks, Greg. It's great to have you. As a matter of fact, um, we got we go way back. We were doing. I'm just remembering some. So we did. We were doing Amnesty International. Maybe it was the St. Peter chapter. Remember that early, yeah, early. That was, uh, that was back in the '80s with Ron Christensen and Tom Emmert. And that's right. Yeah, Ron. Uh, yeah, Ron of political science and Tom of my colleague Tom in history. Uh, yeah, and you were cooking. God, it's all. I, my God, is it lunchtime? I'm just yeah. now remembering you. You were cooking some amazing African. Maybe peanuts, peanut dish. Anyway, that goes way back. Yeah, we were we were both going going there. Um, we, we that cheeserama was amazing. Do you have the same memories I do? I mean, I remember walking into that church, opening the doors. I mean, literally the doors in to go inside and just being hit with these aromas that were incredible. <laughs> Not all pleasant, but mostly. You're, you, do you have memories the way I do of Cheeserama? Oh, yeah. That was a very vivid memory because that was the first time I'd ever done a public cheese presentation. <laughs> so, I've been interested in cheeses for a long time. Um, <clears throat> growing up, my dad and I used to eat Limburger when I was a little kid. And... Um, I even wrote a poem about Limburger when I was in the third grade. <laughs> you didn't have that handy, do you? <laughs> I, actually, I do. Not right here, right now, but oh, uh, we, we, let you see it later. Okay. Uh, but, um, that's amazing. But then my um, mother was in a book club. Um, when I was about 12, she got a book called The Cheese Book, and that's what did me in. On this topic, <laughs> did you um, did you make cheese too? Did you ever make it? That's something I have yet to do. Actually, um, 
I've thought about it, but um, maybe maybe after I retire, I'll get into cheese making. You were just taking the words out of my mouth. I'll join you if I can, because it's something I've always wanted to try. I shouldn't say always, but in, in the last 20, 25 years, I didn't. Apparently, growing up, my parents said I couldn't get enough blue cheese. And then for the longest time in my life, cheese to me meant Velveeta, you know, and nothing else. And, and then probably in high school, my dad was Greek-American. I started loving feta cheese. Um and then I would. Then I met my wife Kate Wittenstein. We met in Boston, and her mother would, um, you know, before any dinner or company coming over, she would have like a cheese plate, which my parents never. <laughs> I didn't know what a cheese plate was, and that's really when I started to enjoy, you know, cheeses I, I'd never had before in, in my life, at least not that I'm aware of. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's so cool, and of course it relates to chemistry, obviously. The um, how, how's the teaching going this semester? What were you doing? You made it through. We made it through another COVID semester. Were you doing hybrid or all in person? Um, I did um, my uh, advanced organic course, which is um, Organic 3 is the official title. And I decided to do that entirely online because um, um, I did my inorganic course online uh, last spring, and I got in kind of used to it or as used to it as one could be and so um and that went okay actually uh i uh it's a small it was a small class with uh seven students and so i could see them all on the computer screen and i just taught it on a blackboard in my office with a webcam and um then we also um did the organic lab on a scaled back basis. So we did what we call the AB schedule where half of one lab section would meet one week and then the other half the next week to keep the population at an acceptable size. Okay. And that's, that, that was actually in the lab, right? Yeah, actually in the lab. And, um, we figured that since uh, the fume hoods run continually in the lab and the students are mostly working at the fume hoods, probably one of the safer spaces on campus to work uh, directly with students. Yeah, and you're in... Uh you're you're in that beautiful well yeah you're in the beautiful redone nobel on yeah, campus that, uh, is, the organic lab is spectacular like i say the it's spacious and the ventilation is outstanding and um we didn't do the full semester of course because we couldn't start until the students came back um, um on campus and this is a sophomore level course so okay. my only freshmen were on campus at the uh, time. But, um, and so I had to scale back the number of experiments, both because of the time constraint and the uh, A-B structure. But at least the students got some experience in the lab, learned some techniques. Yeah, that's yeah. great. That's good. Well, we made it through. I just, I just had a vision of you, of you teaching a lab online and a student blowing up his parents' living room or something by mistake. Oh. But <laughs> we, we thought about having the students do one experiment at home. I was in charge of arranging that, and the more I looked into it, the more <laughs> queasy I got. <laughs> I, I can see some angry parent calling up. You know, uh, why are you having my kids do 
organic chemistry in our kitchen <laughs> on my stove. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. so we just decided to abandon that idea. Yeah, good, good move. You you did the right thing. Yeah, it was a, a lab where they uh, dye different types of fabric and then have to explain why the dye will adhere to some fabrics and uh, some not. And you can do that with a, some fundamental organic chemistry principles. But it just wasn't going to be feasible. Yeah, and I now I'm now I'm imagining yeah the kid the student you know, wrecks mom's or dad's wardrobe in the process now. Yeah. Um, you so you know one question I wanted to ask you as I mentioned before we started recording and since you've mentioned organic and inorganic chem, what is the difference between? I think I took no, you know I don't think I took a single chemistry course in college. I took chemistry in high school, at least one course which I really enjoyed. But what's the difference? What's organic chemistry versus inorganic? Well, it's uh, partly a sort of historical oddity in that, well, let me back up from the oddity part for just a second. I'll come back <laughs> to that. But basically, organic chemistry is uh, chemistry based on carbon and other elements like nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, but it's basically chemistry of carbon. And carbon is unique in that it can form very complex uh, chain, cage, and ring structures. So you can make um, structurally very complex molecules from carbon that other elements don't lend themselves to very efficiently. And um, the division between organic and inorganic chemistry, though, came uh, from a belief that used to be held, what's called vitalism, where people thought that uh, compounds, chemical compounds that came from living organisms had their own life force. And so these compounds or these materials are fundamentally different from everything else, things like uh, minerals and water, you know, and they're living right. versus non-living. And then the chemist uh, named Wohler uh, took down the entire theory in one fell swoop and <laughs> discovered a method for synthesis of urea, which is a biomolecule. And so that entire concept collapsed. But by then, organic and inorganic had become sort of separated. And then um, organic chemistry still is uh, unique in that um, there's a big synthetic component of it where people try to figure out how to make these complex mm -hmm. structures. And um, there is a subset of that where people uh, work out methods for synthesis of natural products, things like, uh, just to name a, something that everybody knows, something like morphine or, or something <laughs> or whatever. And um, that's a... That's a very uh, intricate uh, type of procedure, and it, it exists to some extent in other areas of chemistry, but uh, it's um, uh, developed to a very high degree in organic chemistry. Um, so, go ahead. Yeah, with regard to inorganic chemistry, that's, um, that's everything else, I suppose. 
<laughs> well, so is is the division? I mean, is the division really then um, kind of an artificial one that's just persisted? It's a practical division, I think, would be practical. an artificial and practical division. Okay. And um, then, of course, within inorganic chemistry, which is the remainder of the periodic table, there are lots of really broad classes. So, for instance, there's chemistry of the transition metals um, where other molecules will bind to a central metal uh, atom, and um, that will produce a large variety of molecules that uh, have uh, a huge array of uh, different properties. And I'll talk a little bit more about that probably when we get into um, my research. Okay. Um, thank you. That helped. I've learned. I've, I've always wondered, what the hell is the difference? <laughs> I never bothered to. It doesn't to. have anything to do with organic farming or anything. <laughs> okay. Now, so let's go, let's go back in time uh, a, a bit more beyond, well beyond Cheezorama. Um, tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, uh, first of all, and then also, secondly, how you became, when and how you became interested in chemistry. Okay. Um, well, I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I lived in North Carolina up until, um, or up through the, uh, up until the third grade. And then we moved to um, South Georgia, near Albany, which is in the southwest corner of Georgia. And, um, um, those are biologically some very interesting areas. This is where a lot of my interests came from. I've always been interested in science and nature and just the natural world in general. And in North Carolina, my uh, dad and I used to go hiking in a patch of woods uh, near Charlotte really frequently. And that's where I picked up my um, great love of plants. And um, I also had the Zim book on wildflowers, which I found to be transfixing. Uh -huh. And um, I became especially enamored with lady slippers, which are, uh, of course, orchids. Orchids, right. So I'll say more about that later. But um, And my grandma lived in uh, near Morganton up in the Smoky Mountains. And so we would go up there to visit. And, of course, that's a, an extremely biodiverse spot. The plant life is, and is fascinating. And then um, this is something that a lot of people don't know. Um, it's a pretty recent characterization. But the uh, uh, South Atlantic coastal plain um, has recently been designated as a mega biodiversity hotspot. And so there's a huge diversity of uh, plant and animal life there. I didn't know that. So um, I spent an entire summer with my grandmother in uh, Willacoochee, Georgia. This is before we moved away from North Carolina. And that's a... Um, that's in southeast Georgia, which is an absolute paradise for carnivorous plants, uh, also wild orchids and many, many other plants. So that whole summer there was fascinating. I um, 
she lived out in the country, and her house had been sort of carved out of a, a natural area. So she had all kinds of carnivorous plants just growing wild in the yard. Uh, it was a quite a transformational experience. When you when you when you say just to interrupt quickly when you say carnivorous plants you mean sort of insect eating or yes, yes. Okay. things like pitcher plants for instance yeah uh, that have modified leaves with a pool of digestive fluid in the bottom and they trap insects um, um, come to the top of this hollow tube and it's really slippery and they slip and fall in and they get digested then there are uh, things called sundews, which have little um, tentacles on the leaves and with um, a sticky material on the end. So the insect lands, gets stuck, and then the tentacles just bend over it and exude digestive fluids. That's amazing. And then there, are, there are butterworts, which um, uh, have um, uh, sticky leaves, and so the Insects land on those, and um, the leaf edges start to curl in at that point. And then, of course, there are Venus flytraps, which are um, actually native to North and South Carolina over a small area near the coast. So those weren't in my grandmother's yard. But um, And one final one I can mention are the bladder warts, which are aquatic <laughs> plants. Bladder warts? <laughs> yeah, they, W-O-R-T. Uh, okay. Okay. So, <laughs> thank you uh, for clarifying. That's a, that's a big difference. <laughs> yes, uh, indeed. <laughs> um, anyway, they have these little traps underwater um, with a their bladder shaped, and they have a trap door. So, one of the one of the prey um, organisms enters the trap. It snaps shut, and it gets digested. And actually, we have. Um, Pitcher plants and sundews and uh, bladder warts here in Minnesota, especially up north, you can see those quite easily. Are they are they native native to Minnesota? Native to Minnesota. Huh. huh. What about so? Why aren't you a botanist? I mean, I mean, how does chemistry? How do you well, wind up pursuing chemistry? Well, I can let me. I'll just go ahead and tell you what I did after uh, we moved to Georgia. Okay, so I okay. went to. High school in Albany, Georgia, to Doherty High School. And I took um, the regular chemistry course and then an advanced chemistry course. And I got really interested uh, because I, for one thing, I realized that there were a lot of things out there that I didn't know and didn't understand. For instance, um, one thing I remember pretty vividly is coming upon a um, transition metal coordination complex. And this is one of um, the things I was talking about earlier, where you have a central metal atom with a bunch of other molecules bound to it. And um, I remember thinking that that was just one of the most amazingly complex chemical entities that I had ever seen. And that was an area of chemistry that's not normally covered in high school chemistry. So I just wanted to know more about um, this field. And at the same time, I was fascinated by botany. So those were my two career choices, actually. And I came, I came real close to going into botany instead. Um, 
but I wound up going into chemistry, but I've maintained the, the botany interests pretty intensively since then. Yeah, you have. The, um, so, you know, we also, I would talk a little bit more about Albany because the historian in me, I mean, I know you know this, uh, um, one of the great civil rights struggles ultimately, um, unsuccessful was the was the was so-called Albany movement that King, Dr. King, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, was part of, along with um, activists in the NAACP and Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. You were probably, you and I, probably about eight years old or nine years old, 61, 62. What, what, I mean, did you have much of a sense of um, growing up in a, in, a, in a segregated place or how much of, how much uh, not- of that was... Yeah, that, that was probably about that age, and uh, um, I can say, when you're that age, everything that happens around you, you take just to be the way things normally are. Right. Uh, so, didn't have, uh, looking back, I see that that was, was, was a historically very important set of events, um, but at that age, um, I thought it was interesting. And uh, I guess um, the schools were integrated in Albany, and uh, when I was uh, in the eighth grade, I think. And uh, so, um, yeah, before that, it was entirely segregated. Right. So I went to and I went to um, Albany Junior High School, um, and then um, Doherty. Doherty is the county, and uh, Doherty High School is in another part of the uh, town. And that was integrated by the time you were there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I want, I've never I've been to Atlanta only, and uh, so many places in Georgia I want to go to, including Albany, Savannah. Um, so, yeah, I didn't know I didn't know any of that. I mean, I just knew where you grew up. I didn't know that that intense interest you already had in in plants and, and related to where you were. I mean, North Carolina and Georgia. The um, so you wind up getting your your Ph.D. You do postdoc work. Let's talk a little bit about your your research. So your expertise is in uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, but fluorine and phosphorus. What do you what are you looking at with respect to? Uh, fluorine and phosphorus. Well, I'll start out with how my interests developed in uh, when I was in college, and that'll branch out into the the specifics. Okay. okay so when I was an undergraduate, um, I liked general chemistry. Okay, but um, especially the third quarter of it, we were on the quarter system, and. Um, then the second year, the traditional curriculum is organic chemistry, and um, I bought the organic chemistry textbook before I left for the summer and was just reading it, and uh, I became absolutely, utterly, completely fascinated by organic chemistry. And um, I came back, I was very lucky to have a professor named Leon Zalko, who um, is a natural products chemist. And um, so natural products, chemists uh, isolate compounds from plants or other organisms and uh, work out the structures and properties. And um, that's an important subfield also because, of, for instance, uh, many medicinal compounds are originally discovered that way. Hmm. Um, 
But um, anyway, he was a fantastic lecturer. He was very friendly and extremely enthusiastic and deeply knowledgeable. I had him for all three semesters. So he's one of the, he's probably the single person who most shaped the direction of my interests in chemistry. And, um, you know, so um, anyway, so I, I was fascinated by organic. And then I uh, took um, an inorganic chemistry course. And I'd been reading about inorganic compounds to some extent anyway. And I became really interested in, especially in the chemistry of the non-metallic elements other than carbon. And so um, went ahead, graduated with my bachelor's degree, and then I stayed at Georgia Tech for my PhD. And um, I worked, part of what I did um, as a graduate student was work with uh, what are called crown ethers. And I won't go into the specifics, but I'll just tell you what they do. They are, they're an organic molecule, the structure of which allows it to cause um, inorganic compounds that normally are not soluble in organic solvents to become soluble. So basically, okay. basically the crown ether is a cyclic molecule that has oxygen atoms that act like teeth basically, and they will come down and grab a positively charged ion and pull it into solution. And then, of course, you have to have a negatively charged ion to go with it to balance the charge. So it has to go, whether it's uh, being tightly bound or not. And that makes it much, much more reactive. And so um, you can use crown ethers to speed up um, certain types of reactions very, 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 by very large factors. And so uh, I was working with those and uh, also doing some um, work with um, oxidation of organic compounds by uh, chromium compounds. And so that's a blend of organic and inorganic. Um, that's another thing. When I was taking organic, I... Uh, found myself to be almost as fascinated by the uh, inorganic reactants as that were transforming the organic compounds as the organic compounds themselves. And then uh, another big, uh, this is the biggest area, I uh, worked in um, organophosphorus chemistry, where this is where you incorporate phosphorus atoms into organic compounds. And um, um, to do that, I had to learn a lot of techniques for handling uh, compounds that are super sensitive to oxygen and to uh, water. So those are called inert atmosphere techniques. And so I already had, I had this interest in phosphorus chemistry and other things like sulfur chemistry and fluorine, fluorinated compounds. And um, so I thought, it would be interesting to do something pretty radically different for my postdoc from what I'd done in grad school. And so I was lucky to um, acquire a postdoc with uh, Daryl DeMarteau at Kansas State. And Daryl um, is a world-class inorganic fluorine chemist. He's retired now, but... Uh, 
Uh, he's one of the most prolific uh, of all fluorine chemists in terms of uh, publications and also innovation. He actually, um, there's an award from the American Chemical Society called the Award for Creative Work in Fluorine Chemistry. And as far as I know, Daryl is still the youngest person to have ever received that award. Uh, so I was lucky to get a postdoc with him, and I drove out to Manhattan, Kansas, where K-State is, and um, it was um, a real culture shock because, um, in a good way, because um, all of that chemistry is done with uh, what are called vacuum lines, where you uh, have um, calibrated... Um, volumes that are under vacuum, and then you let um, predetermined amounts of gas into these volumes, and then you can manipulate them in various ways and do uh, do chemistry with them. So I got a lot of experience in learning how to do reactions with gases. I also learned a tremendous amount about uh, new types of equipment and other new techniques. And um, so... Another uh, thing that was uh, culturally interesting that a lot of people will, who are chemists will find to be shocking was there's this network of <laughs> copper tubing through the uh, ceiling of the lab. And what that was was uh, fluor elemental fluorine on tap. So we had a fluorine. <laughs> inlet on each vacuum line. Each uh, researcher had a vacuum line. And uh, so I learned how to handle elemental fluorine, and uh, <laughs> which uh, the thought of which terrifies a lot of people. But it's, uh, you know, if you know how it behaves, it's just one one other substance. And uh, is, is it is it is it terrifying because it? I mean, what it could explode or something uh, or what? Uh, it's extremely extremely reactive. Okay. And uh, the reactions are very exothermic. They produce um, lots of heat. And um, so, for instance, um, you could, there are two ways you could tell when a valve started leaking on the fluorine apparatus because when you turned it, it's leaking around the valve stem. Uh, a little bit of fluorine that's coming out will actually warm up your skin because it's so exothermic. It's not enough to really cause a burn, but it gets your attention. <laughs> and another interesting thing about fluorine is that um, it has a really distinctive odor. And once again, people, are you smelling fluorine? Well, it, it turns out that it can be detected at extremely low concentrations, far below um, what is going to be uh, harmful, at least for a real short exposure. And you might think it would smell like chlorine, which is all right below fluorine in the periodic table, but it actually, that's exactly what I thought. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. It actually smells kind of sweet. It's a real harsh sweetness, but I, that's another surprising thing. But anyway, <laughs> I learned a tremendous amount uh, in terms of technique working with uh, Daryl and um, my co-workers, and um, I also became a reasonably good glass blower because a lot of this apparatus is glass, and if you want to 
something special. Sometimes it's uh, faster to just try to make it yourself than to put in an order and wait for it, or if you need to make a quick repair. So a lot of this um, carried over to Gustavus. Um, I have a vacuum line uh, and other entered atmosphere apparatus in my research lab, and uh, students who work with me get to learn all these techniques. We don't work with elemental fluorine, but um, we do work with uh, other gases. And um, so that's a really valuable uh, set of techniques that uh, is not real commonly encountered, I think, in undergraduate institutions. Yeah, I was literally just going to ask you about that because... I mean, what you're talking about is not just sort of the knowledge, right? But the the techniques. I mean, that training in techniques is incredibly valuable to you um, as a chemist, and then to your to your students as well as you teach them um, without without the copper piping in your lab. So, yeah, well, that, I, I decided I didn't need a tank of fluorine in my lab. But. <laughs> either you're either going to need to up your insurance significantly. Yeah. So, so what is the, what is the, um, one, a couple of things here. One, I've, I've learned talking to, um, well now talking to you and talking to a couple of other chemists, your colleagues, Dwight, Dwight Stoll, for example, um, uh, I've learned Jeff Jeff uh, Jeremiah, but what so can is this may be a naive question, but you know all of you talk about reactivity. Is, is so is that the whole is that it is that what chemistry is about at bottom is this reaction like I you know reaction agents reactivity? Oh well, um, that's a a big part of it. And when you're talking about reactivity. A lot of times people are talking about how fast things react. Um, and then, of course, um, there are other dimensions to that. Some things are very reactive with atmospheric oxygen, for instance, or with water. Other things are inert to those, but they're very reactive in some other dimension. And so it's it's not a real precise term, but... Um, in general, the more reactive something is, usually someone is talking about how fast the uh, reactions go. That's not okay. a complete definition, but um, okay, that helps. What about so? What are what are some of the um, if there are any? I mean, some of the practical uh, uh, consequences of your research or applications of your research. <clears throat> well. Um, we're uh, doing research in um, organophosphorus chemistry um, and um, a couple of other things. I've done some organic synthesis, not real complicated organic synthesis, but, um, and, um, oh, let's see. Um, we're also doing some research on uh, new experiments for the lab in my inorganic course. But the main thrust is the phosphorus chemistry. And um, the type of phosphorus chemistry that we do has phosphorus bonded to um, three uh, carbon atoms of an organic structure. And you can vary that structure quite a bit and thus vary the properties of the uh, phosphorus, organic phosphorus compound. And one thing that's really important about 
these particular types of compounds is that they are um, very important in um, a subset of transition metal chemistry called transition metal organometallic chemistry. Organometallic is where you have a carbon directly bonded to a, um, a metal atom of some kind. And those compounds, in turn, um, there's a big subset of them that are extremely important as catalysts for doing all kinds of uh, synthetic transformations, both on a lab scale and also industrially. And so these, uh, these uh, molecules that I'm talking about that have phosphorus atoms in them are called phosphenes. And they're really, really important in that type of um, that type of chemistry. These are I talked about coordination complexes a while back, and that's where you have another molecule bound to a central metal atom. And phosphenes are um, one type of molecule that can be bound to that central metal, but um, that's one really big uh, application. And then um, organophosphorus compounds can have some interesting uh, physiological properties as well. But I think the, the application in catalysis is probably the most important. One thing we're doing um, is we've worked out a way to attach uh, highly fluorinated organic chains to these molecules. And by highly fluorinated, I mean, um, I'm talking about um, compounds where a lot of the carbon-hydrogen bonds have been replaced by fluorine. And so let's say you have a chain of eight carbon atoms. The carbons are bonded to one another, but they're also bonded to hydrogens. Okay, so if you, uh, for instance, um, if you had just a molecule of eight carbons, that's a straight chain. And the other atoms are hydrogen. That's called octane, which is something I've never heard of. And so let's say you break a piece off of the end of that chain so that you can attach it to something else. So we could attach that, what would be called now an octyl group, to the phosphorus atom. And there are some pretty straightforward ways to do that. Um, now the... Um, but let's say you replace most or all of those hydrogens in that chain with fluorines. Then what you have is a chain that does not have the properties of octane or an octyl group anymore. It's more like a piece of Teflon. Because mm -hmm. Teflon is a completely fluorinated polymer. And that gives these uh, compounds some very, very interesting solubility properties properties, for instance, they, uh, which they would not have were it not for that fluorinated group. So that's one area that we've been working in fairly recently. Putting So I get to mix uh, fluorine and phosphorus chemistry. Yeah, that's neat. I, I'm just, as you're speaking, I'm visualizing sort of, <laughs> you know, removing hydrogen, adding fluorine is kind of you know, well, it's similar to cooking, Brian, maybe in some ways. You're, you're doing some cooking yeah, it's, there. Um, it's easier than you might think to make some of what are called these perfluorinated compounds where all the hydrogens have been replaced by fluorine. It's, uh, there's an electrochemical process um, 
called electrochemical fluorination, where you can put certain organic compounds into this electrolysis cell, and what comes out is uh, the perfluorinated compound. 3M does a tremendous amount of that kind of chemistry. Okay. Well, this that actually leads to leads me to a question I want to add. You mentioned 3M. I'm wondering, did, did you ever consider uh, a career in in the private sector as a chemist, or were you you set on teaching uh, from the get go, for at least from from graduate school? I was pretty set on uh, teaching and research in an academic setting. Actually, what uh, is it? What is it you like? What is it you really enjoy about collaborating with students as you do? Well, uh, underlying that is the uh, intellectual freedom you have in an academic institution uh, that you wouldn't necessarily have in all uh, industrial operations. There have been some exceptions to that, but by and large, I wanted to just come up with my own projects and work on those. And then I really enjoy introducing students to new things and um, seeing them um, learn uh, new types of chemistry and new, new kinds of techniques, like the uh, vacuum line techniques, for instance. Uh, we also have an inert atmosphere glove box, and they learn how to use that. And we've got other apparatus for manipulations of gases and uh, all these extremely air-sensitive compounds. And so um, uh, it takes a... Not all students are interested in doing that kind of chemistry, but the ones who are... Uh, really, really get into it. Yeah, that's 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 neat. Now you've um, <clears throat> your your interest in plants and what you just described. You're you're loving to introduce students to to, to new techniques, new knowledge. Converges in um, the story of Perry, the corpse flower, which we 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 must discuss. So. Tell us a little bit about first of all what is it what is a corpse flower I mean that's not what that's not a scientific name right Oh it's um the scientific name is Amorphophallus titanum which means um titanic formless penis if you translate that and um and this of course is because of the structure of the inflorescence um and I'll come back and talk about that in just a moment. Um, but first, let me uh, talk about what uh, kind of plant Perry is. And I can also talk a little bit later about the name. Um, yes, I want to And, um, okay, so um, everybody's familiar with uh, philodendrons, uh, you know, the house plants. Right. I can buy in lots of places. You probably might not have ever seen one blooming, though. Um, that's a relative of Perry. And then if you know what a calla lily looks like, that's a relative of Perry. Or if you're a wildflower enthusiast, you know about Jack in the Pulpit. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, and Jack in the Pulpit, you know, has this hood, and then inside it is that column. Right. And that's not one flower. That's what's called an inflorescence, which is a collection of flowers. And if you look down inside that structure, you'll see that that column has both male and female flowers on it. 
and um, and this entire family of plants are called the aeroids or a or aracee and um, they occur all over the world and they're especially highly developed in the tropics so there are lots of philodendron species for instance now um, there are lots of different species of amorphophallus as well. It just happens that titanum is the largest one and the most spectacular. And I first learned about it at my grandma's house in North Carolina because she had this great set of gardening encyclopedias that I pretty much read from first volume to the last, um, or at least went through them, read the articles that I found to be interesting. And there's a famous picture of Amorphophallus titanum with a botanist named Hugo de Vries standing on, I think, on a barrel next to it because he was a fairly short guy. <laughs> and that etched itself into my mind vividly. <laughs> and I uh, had no idea that at some point in my life I'd have <laughs> one of these things growing just a few steps down the hall from my office. But... Um, Anyway, that happened, and um, the way uh, we got Perry and uh, the other, we, we have several clones of this, and by clone, I mean um, they come from different seeds, okay, and so, but they're the same species, so it's not, not clone in the sense that they're identical. Right. Um, okay, so anyway, uh, there was a conservation project that was initiated by a fellow named James Simon, who was a medical doctor in California and also a plant enthusiast. And um, he got wind that um, these plants were threatened in habitat. And so he decided to make a trip to Sumatra, which is the only place where this plant grows, and collect some seeds and bring them back to distribute to botanical gardens and other such institutions, and I'm on an Aeroid email discussion list, and uh, he posted this information on there and uh, said, send me an email if you're interested in having some of the seeds, and I figured, well, what's the chance he's going to send them to Gustavus, because there are a lot of other larger botanical gardens and whatever, but I sent him a request, and um about a week later, I had 19 seeds of Amorphophallus titanum, <laughs> and most of them sprouted, and we grew them along and um, in the greenhouse, and uh, we've donated a few here and there, and the most vigorous one we was the one we decided to coax along. They, they just keep growing bigger if you put them into bigger and bigger pots. And so that's the one that got potted up into larger and larger pots until it finally bloomed, I think, in 2007. Right. And we had roughly counted about 7,500 people came through the Gustavus Greenhouse for that event. It was one of the most surreal experiences I've ever had. It's like being in a dream for about two or three <laughs> days straight. 
Well, when you Google, you know, you Google Brian O'Brien at Gustavus, I mean, it's amazing what comes up related to Perry. It's, it's unbelievable. Oh, okay. I'll have to try. I have a try. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, people writing newspaper articles, you're blogging about it. Um, so, you know, one of the, I went, I think it was, I don't know if I went the first, because it's bloomed more than once, right? Yeah, I think it's bloomed maybe um, three times on campus and, then uh, during the renovation, it was over at um, St. Olaf. Actually, uh, one of the other ones was over there too, and it bloomed for the first time. Now, is the blooming the blooming is really unusual? I mean, with this plant. Yeah, let me get. I hadn't told you about the structure of uh, Perry. I told you about Jack in the pulpit, but Perry right. basically works the same way. So you have this outer leaf-like structure. That's called the spathe. And then inside are the reproductive parts. And that's uh, you've got that big column that rises from the center. And that's where the uh, genus name comes from. Right. And um, if you look down in there, you can actually see the male and female flowers. And the way the, the inflorescence works is that uh, the... Uh, Let's see, which way does this go? The um, male flowers become fertile out of sequence with the female flowers, let me just say. Okay. And so they're not fertile at the same time, and that um, avoids self-pollination hmm. in nature. And But you can collect the pollen, and we do that, and uh, store it in the minus 80 freezer. Just like the freezers that the uh, Pfizer the Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think about this every time I see something on that topic. Here. <laughs> oh, that's how we store the Perry pollen. <laughs> so, but anyway, we store it because um, that'll keep it for fresh for a really long time. And then we um, send it to other people who might want to pollinate their plants so they can do a cross-pollination. And so, um, but anyway, that was, uh, the first blooming was the first time that it had bloomed. Uh, one of those had bloomed in Minnesota. Wow. So, and the bloom, I remember the plant being really, um, really pretty. I mean, it was, it was huge. I remember it was yeah. big, but I remember uh, with the, with the sort of the, the penis sticking out, the erect penis, but it was, it was pretty kind of red, right? Am I remembering? Yeah, yeah it's a beautiful thing, actually. Yeah, it was, it was, I wasn't expecting that. It was really beautiful. And then, um, and I don't remember whether I went the first time or the second time, but in any case, the smell, right? So, I mean, hence the name, the, the popular corpse flower why why that smell is it to just i mean is it to keep people away bugs okay. i don't know. attract pollinators actually okay and people sometimes don't realize this but there are lots and lots of flowers out in nature that have really atrocious odors and they attract things like um flies for instance so they can have you know fecal odors or rotting meat odors or whatever and um, there's one genus of orchids, and this is, that actually um, has evolved to uh, so that part of the flower looks like a little mushroom, and it produces a mushroom odor, which is um, uh, largely due to a particular alcohol called mushroom alcohol. 
and it's pollinated by fungus gnats. So it's a fungus, and uh, orchids do a lot of lot of mimicry. But anyway, back to um, Harry. Not sure that it's been exactly worked out exactly what the pollinator or pollinators are in nature, but that's what the uh, that's what the fragrance is for. That's fascinating. And now the and now the name. Why Perry? Well, that's a um, just a nickname. Actually, we originally wanted to uh, thought it would be good to name Perry after one of the Titans. And um, I started reading up on the Titans and thinking, well, we certainly don't want to call it Kronos. <laughs> and, uh, so we finally settled on Hyperion, who was associated with um, learning and light, and et cetera. Perfect. But, you know, some of the other ones, though, uh, no way. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing um, how many people came, how many people, also how many people didn't come and looked on, viewed it on Facebook. I think you had a, oh, you had a webcam too, right? Wasn't yeah, there a lot? Yeah, a streaming webcam, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was amazing. Yeah, I mean, I'd never even heard of, I'd never heard of the flower until all of that. And I'd certainly never seen one. Hey, it was pretty a, cool. That's a, a really good way to make uh uh, raise awareness of the wonders of the natural world and also uh, just of plants in general. Uh, a lot of people have what's called plant blindness. Uh, they'll look at, you know, some interesting set of plants and what they see is green yeah. and, it, and it's boring. But uh, that's uh, not not the reality of it. Yeah, I hear you. I um. I am not, a, I'm certainly not anywhere close to being a, a skilled gardener, but for the last four or five years here, Kate and I have been part of a community garden, which, God, I just love it, one. And there's a guy, um, uh, one of our fellow gardeners is a, is a horticulturalist, has a horticultural degree from the U, and I've just learned from the University of Minnesota, learned so much about, um, he plants flowers as well as edibles, but um, man, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And well, the the variety, the color, how they work, as you're saying, you know, what a, okay, it's a repulsive smell to us, but it works to attract pollinators for the plant. Yes. I mean, it's fascinating. And, you know, this also is a good segue into um, what you were telling me before we started recording about you taking students, uh, you know, about out into the field. Tell us a little bit about that in, in Southern Minnesota to look at plant life. Well, um, <clears throat> the... We're lucky in Minnesota in that our DNR has some uh, fantastic uh, biological reserves, not just the state parks, but less well-known are um, the wildlife management areas, which um, one of the main purposes of those is for um, hunting and providing uh, habitat uh, for game and other animals. Then. There's also a system of uh, places called um, scientific and natural areas. And those are established uh, well, as, well, as biological reserves. Um, so um, a scientific and natural area might be established because it has a particular type of rare ecosystem on it or a particular array of rare uh, 
plants or animals or of some kind. And they're dotted all over the state. And um, another thing that's not generally known is that they are all open to the public at no charge. Mm-hmm. And so it's like this beautiful old biosphere reserve that you can visit anytime. We have several of them near St. Peter. Um, and um, so I've taken, um, I go to these uh, pretty frequently by myself. I've been to most of the ones in southern Minnesota, as a matter of fact. There are a total, I think, now of 163 in the state. Wow. But, uh, yeah, they do an excellent job of acquiring uh, really unique habitats. They're trying to have at least one example of every single type of habitat that exists in the state. That's fantastic. So, um, so for instance, we have one called Chamberlain Woods Scientific and Natural Area, which is uh, near Ottawa, if you know that's northern. Yes. Yeah, just south of Lesseur. And that's about, I think, 270 acres, and it's an outstanding example of uh, a floodplain forest. It's a really large floodplain forest, and uh, it also has an upper hardwood forest that's uh, fascinating in all seasons. That's a nine-mile drive, uh, or eight and a half miles. So I go there pretty frequently uh, year-round, and I've taken students over there as well. I always have an array of uh, what I call my plant students who are uh, people people who are really, really interested in plants. And they uh, often manage to find me. And and, uh, that's um, that's it from there. That's well, I was just going to say that's the magic. That's the magic of teaching and learning. Right. When you find as you did when you were a student, you find. You find the teacher whose whose interests yeah. either inspire you, match yours, or or both. Um, yeah. So are these are these? I mean, are you doing these as chemistry courses or just sort of independent studies oh. or botany oh. courses? Oh, it's, uh, these aren't courses actually. These are just for uh, enjoyment and for learning about the natural world. Yeah. I, I've learned quite a lot about Minnesota plants since I've been here, and. Um, the, I can show the students things that they might not have noticed otherwise. And by definition, if they're on one of these trips, then they're interested. Uh, one thing that I've done for a really long time, um, probably it started back in the early 90s, uh, I found that there was a gigantic colony of white lady slippers that grow um, just across the river from St. Peter. If you know where the trout ponds are, um, that's a that's a wildlife management area, and it's an example of uh, what's called a calcareous fin, which is um, a rare type of habitat globally. It's I won't go into the details, but the water has a much higher pH than a normal fin would have, or a normal uh, bog, I should say, probably. So the plant life in those is very different from what you'd find elsewhere. And Minnesota just happens to be a population center for that globally rare lady slippers. So you can see hundreds or thousands of them there. So, so in May, 
they bloom in late May, so almost every May when it's not flooded or some such thing, I take a group of students over there and we um, look at the lady slippers and the other things, and they're always vastly impressed by what they see. Actually, they're often stunned by what they see. Well, I want to join you. Um, if you if you if you do it this May, I want to join you. And I'm not kidding because I've never seen it. And just listening to you here, I'm thinking about um, you know the, the importance of looking to learning. I mean, knowing how to look, and I don't mean just you know looking at plants, but you know anything. Whether you're walking in a city, noticing things that you otherwise might not notice or think much about. I mean, people probably think Minnesota and they think corn and soybeans and maybe sugar beets and wheat, but you know, you're talking about a whole, a whole world that, you know, I'm not aware of. Yeah. Um, it's, it, yeah mul right. It, it's just fascinating. So in, in, in the time left, I want to shift to your, um, department specifically and in the aftermath of, um, the killing of George Floyd here in Minneapolis, um, you know, institutions are, are across the country of higher higher ed colleges and universities are doing soul searching around issues of racial justice. And um, your department has, I think, just a phenomenal statement dated November 6, 2020 on your department uh, web page in which you talk about not only systemic racism, uh, but you acknowledge and I'm, I'm, I'm quoting here. Um, scientists have been complicit in creating a system that advantages white people in STEM disciplines and healthcare. And you go on to talk about um, how while words matter, while a statement like this matters, you, 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 you need to do more. And you, you and your colleagues lay out a whole uh, bunch of steps that you, you intend to take. I just thought it was phenomenal. First of all, um, I mean, what was that? Was that difficult to do as a department? I mean, was there dissension or was it sort of easy oh, to do? Oh, I'd say there was no dissension at all that I know of. I think everyone is uh, quite enthusiastic about it, as a matter of fact. And yeah, I, 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 I'm honestly, it's it's a superb statement. People oh, listening should read it. Go to the Gustavus Adolphus College Chemistry uh, web website and read that statement. There's also one in English. Other other in our my own department, we're working on one too. I just think the way the way um, I don't know. In my look, I'm not a scientist. I'm not as well versed, obviously, in the in the discipline as you. But in my, I don't I don't have a sense of scientists that often acknowledging what your statement acknowledges about. I think about. that's historically been the case. It's um, something that a lot of people just never really thought about, but almost with hindsight, it's rather, rather obvious. So, yes. Well, it's, a, it's an amazing statement and I, um, makes me proud to be, uh, as the other statements do as well, proud to be a part of, well, of Gustavus. Hi, I really appreciate that. I'll let my colleagues know. Please do. Uh, yeah. About this as well. They'll be really happy to hear it. Please, please do, because I hadn't noticed it until I was um, poking around looking for, for more about you. And then just to conclude this, um, you, you can speak both as a, just as you, but as a chemistry professor at Gustavus and as someone who's chaired your department probably more than once over the years, I imagine. But what's your pitch for, for your department and, and your major? I mean, why, um, why study chemistry uh, at a liberal arts college? Why maybe even major in chemistry at Gustavus. Oh, okay. So <laughs> there are philosophical and practical reasons for this. Um, 
I think philosophically that chemistry is one of the uh, best things that you can study. Maybe I shouldn't say best. It's one of the most um, interesting from a lot of points of view. Um, and it's one of the more fundamental things that you can study in order to understand how the natural world operates. So, for instance, all living things, of course, are um, operate based on chemical principles because they are simply chemical systems. So if you're going to really understand biology, uh, you need to understand, have at least um, a qualitative understanding of what a molecule is and how the atoms bond to one another and form different shapes and whatever. And so um, just uh, if you study chemistry, I think it expands your um, perspective on in lots of other areas as well. So, for instance, if we go back to Perry the Corpse Flower, um, you start wondering, well, what are the chemicals that are in the fragrance? So it bothers some people for me to call it a fragrance, but um, <laughs> it's not what most people would call a fragrance, but that's what it is. Of that particular plant, and that's actually been analyzed. Uh, you can capture the uh, fragrance molecules fairly easily, and uh, there are some that are related to skunk odor, some related to fish, uh, some related more to what you'd smell coming out of a paper mill. And uh, one thing that hasn't been done is to study how it changes as a function of time and um, so that's a potential research project actually uh, because it it obviously does we have a, a sign-up sheet outside the door of the greenhouse when it's blooming for people to write down what their impression of the odor is and you've got some interesting responses um, some of which are uh, disturbing even, but, uh, <laughs> but overall, you can see that the perception that people have changes over the couple of days that this event is going on. And so we want to study um, how the chemical composition changes as a function of time. I've talked with Dwight about this. He's uh, interested in maybe doing this at some point. And uh, so that's um. All of these disciplines are intertwined, biology and chemistry and physics. And then um, from a, a practical career point of view, I should say, um, uh, chemistry gives you um, the ability to go into lots of different types of fields. You can go into medicine, uh, either uh, human or animal. Uh, you can go into pharmacy. You can uh, become a synthetic chemist. Uh, Chemistry is excellent, uh, an excellent background if you're going to go into um, material science, which, of course, uh, has lots and lots of uh, different components, including many that are uh, involve a lot of physics, but also chemistry. So it's just a, it's a very versatile type of degree to have. You can do lots of different things with it. And as to why do... Um, do this at a liberal arts college, well, of course, all of the other facets of learning are 
as important as the scientific ones. And so that helps put the science into um, context if you learn history, philosophy, literature. And um, in addition, at a college like Gustavus, uh, there's a lot of um, close personal interaction one-on-one, even um, in, with regard to um, regularly scheduled classes, uh, there's a lot of one-to-one interpersonal interaction, which you wouldn't necessarily get as much of, if at all, in a larger class at a larger institution. Right. And in addition, um, there's always the opportunity to do your own research projects. And in the course of that, learn a lot of things that you might not have even known existed. And once again, that's a highly uh, one-on-one type of interaction. So in a nutshell, that's why someone should uh, come to Gustavus and major in chemistry. They should. I hope they do. And they should They should um, definitely take some courses with you or some bot- botany walks. The... Um, Man, uh, it's absolutely fascinating to me. You know, what you were just talking about, the change over time in the odor. So that's history. Um, and I'm just imagining that. Do it. I mean, work. turn that into a course because, man, that could be, you could be looking at narratives, you know, what people are writing in the yeah. book. It's also history. It's, I mean, and believe it or not, I mean, you know, there's a history of everything. And so we have scholars who study histories of smells. I should hook you up with some of that literature since you have a, a smell collection. You're so interested in smells. But um, it's all fascinating. Thank you for that that pitch. Um, and by the way, at Gustavus, you, you students get to work in that wonderful new building we were we were talking about. So, um, Brian, I have so many images of you uh, as we speak. One of, one of them is that she's around. The other is um, it was movie night at our colleague Paul Saulnier's house, and you came with a big jar of sake with a, I think it was a dead snake, I hope. Yeah, it was a dead snake <laughs> wrapped at the bottom of it that you had somehow, I think maybe it was pre-9-11, right? Because you had it as carry-on, is my memory. No, actually, my brother was living in Japan at the time, and um, he had visited Okinawa where he bought that, and he brought it back as a Christmas present for me. <laughs> I, I had I'm, never seen that before. I, I did have it um, as carry-on coming from Georgia to Minnesota, so it was pre-9-11 for sure. Okay. Um, Yeah. All right. Take good care. This has been a blast. Thank you so much. Um, And uh, hopefully, yeah, you know, I really, I really mean it about the the walk in May. I'm going to look forward to that. That sounds like fun. I was planning to ask you actually. So yeah, no, I would, I would love to do that because that is something I took a walk a long time ago with um, a colleague now retired in philosophy, Dean Curtin, and he was showing me wagon wheel ruts, you know, from, I don't know, I guess the 19th century that I'd never seen out there in the prairie somewhere, which was also also quite wow. interesting. So, yeah, I look forward to, to seeing all the botany. So take good care, stay well, um, have a good good holiday break, and, and hopefully we'll see each other in person before too long. Okay. Thanks a lot, Greg. I appreciate your asking me. Thank you, Brian. It was a pleasure. Take care. You too. Bye. Thank you. Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Gustavus graduate Will Clark, class of 20, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College. <laughs>